Welcome to the New Stories Podcast, Season 2. All right, friends, I am always excited about our podcast guests, but I will confess I'm super excited about this congregation of family and friends with a capital F and lowercase f on our podcast today. And our topic is what is Quaker education? And we have some dynamic folks who can break down what seems like a very simple question, but it's actually quite complex. And and there isn't anybody I would think I'd want to be in this conversation with, especially at this moment in time, than these three folks. So I am Rodney Glasgow, the head of school at Sandy Spring Friends School. Thank you for listening in on this podcast. And I am joined today by three icons in the Quaker education world, and I will have them introduce themselves, beginning with colleague and friend Monica Ruiz. Hi, everyone. My name is Monica Ruiz, and I am the assistant head of school at Sandy Spring Friends School. And Deborah. Hi, everyone. I'm Deborah Sines-Panko, and I'm the associate director of Friends Council on Education. And Tony. Hi, everybody. My name is Tony Graves-Williamson. I am the Director of Equity and Inclusion at Friends Select School in Philadelphia, PA. Awesome. Well, let's just jump right in. I was in Denver recently, actually up past Vail in Beaver Creek, and there is a Friends School in Beaver Creek. And I got really excited to meet the head of the Friends School. I said, I'm so glad to meet another Quaker head, especially way up here. And she said, we're not a Quaker school. (laughs) <laughs> and I said, well, where'd the name Friends come from? And she said, the first kids named it Friends School because that's where they went to see their friends. <laughs> and everybody mistakes us for a friend school in the Quaker sense. And so it drives me to the question of when we say friends, what do we mean? What is a friend? And, and what does it mean to be a Quaker friend? Why don't I touch on that one? The Quakers, the group of people that we know as Quakers, the actual name is the Religious Society of Friends. And that's a name that they called themselves way back in the 1650s. They called themselves also sometimes the Friends of Truth. And their idea was that they were restoring authenticity to their religion. And they wanted to, you know, boil it down and take away all the trappings of traditional Christianity and to just connect as the friends of truth and to really honor that that part of themselves. They got the name of Quakers because when they were called in front of the judicial bodies, they were trembling. And it was actually a pejorative term that the judge used and said, you're just a bunch of old Quakers. And it kind of stuck. And so there are many names like that in our society that start out as pejorative and then become the name of the group. So that's how Quakers got their names. And we do call ourselves friends, but we also call ourselves Quakers. Anyone want to add to even the the legacy of what it means to be a friend? And I'm also thinking about the distinctions between traditional Christianity and Quakerism. And, and sort of behind that is this question of, are Quakers Christian? Question mark. I would say it depends on who you ask. But to, and I think Deborah probably could give a more general answer, probably Monica as well. But what I will say is the, I grew up as a Christian, but what spoke to me about Quakerism when I first became a Quaker educator was that, and I remember talking to my family about this, that it was the first time I saw a religion that walked the walk, but if they didn't walk the walk, 
then they figured out why they weren't walking the walk and what could be done. And so that just spoke to me as a person, that integrity, the inside and the outside matching. That's what really speaks to me about the religion of Quakerism. But the Christianity part, I would say, if I, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think George Fox or Margaret Fell, some of the early Quakers would use the term Christian. But I, I do believe as we think about the Quaker, the mission of truth is continually revealed, the explanation of what that means in terms of as it relates to your religion also evolves for people specifically. I don't know what you did. Did I hit on that like you would? <laughs> you sure did. I was just wondering, Monica, what's your take on that? I think that like Tony says, it really varies. I'm thinking about the evangelical Quakers that I have encountered throughout the Spanish-speaking Americas and how their mode of worship and how the manifestation of that faith, the performative element of how they enact their faith might be more consonant, right, with what we would perceive as more traditional Christian ethos and worship, really. So as a Latina who grew up in a Christian environment and came to Quakerism later in life, I'd have to say that, yes, Quakers are, in essence, tied to Christianity and that that is manifested in more tangible uh, ways across the world, right? Mm. I think, Monica, you're hitting on a key point, which is in this country, we think of Quakerism as an American thing, but it's or a United States thing even, but it's not just that. I wonder if y'all will talk about sort of Quakerism around the globe. And we will also note in this group that Quakerism tends to have sort of an older and wider feel in the United States. But, but as we move around the globe, how does Quakerism and the demographics of Quakers change? Yeah, I'll just build on what Monica was saying is that Quakers across the globe, there's actually more Quakers in Kenya mm -hmm. than there are anywhere else in the world. So as you said, we tend to think of Quakerism in the United States as being a white Christocentric religion, but that the evangelical Quakers who went to Kenya have been very successful in forming hospitals and schools and faith community groups there. So they have really taken off. The other place they have really taken off is in Bolivia mm -hmm. and La Paz. And there are a lot of Quakers in, in Bolivia. And we have quite a lot of interaction with some of the people from the schools in Bolivia, although not quite as much with friends in Kenya. Mm -hmm. I came to Quakerism as a teenager and I'm a white woman. And what drew me was that I had gone to church always with my grandmother and it felt Oh, like I was being scolded all the time. And so what was very freeing to me in coming to the Quakerism was that I got to interpret spirit, God, my relationship with the divine in the way that felt right to me. And I wasn't being instructed and told how to do it all the time. So that really spoke to me as kind of a rebellious teen. I wanted to, you know, make it my own. Mm. Also, it was just the end of the Vietnam War. And it really spoke to me that this was a traditionally peace church. So Quakers were really active in the peace movement and also in the civil rights movement. That's That spoke to me. It meant I wanted to be involved in those movements as much as I could as a teen. Mm. 
now I love this thread of stories and, and I was thinking about, so when did I come to, to know and love Quakerism? I think before I knew the word Quaker, I understood and loved the philosophy mm-hmm. of Quakerism, probably through The Color Purple, which is my favorite book, favorite movie and favorite stage play and soundtrack, <laughs> right? Um, all my favorite things. And there's a part in there where one of the characters talks about being part of a spirituality that isn't personified in this sort of depiction of any man or any human being that doesn't need a relationship mitigated by any sort of preacher or person up front, that it's a direct relationship that's deeply also tied to a spiritualism and nature such that I remember the line, if you cut a tree, you'd feel as if your own arm would bleed. Right, just this sort of direct connection to the earth and the spirit of the earth. And so I didn't have the word Quaker then, but I had an aha of like, I think that describes me and my spirituality and then sort of fell into Quaker, getting into the world of independent schools and being introduced to Quaker schools and now hitting one. And so it makes me think back to that Friends School at the top of the mountain in Beaver Creek and Sandy Spring Friends School or Friends Select School, right, or Westtown School or Abington Friends School. Friends School of Baltimore, and how that group of friends as a philosophy of education is different from my colleague who said, we just named our school because our friends go there. (laughs) What would you say distinguishes a friend's school from a school that is simply named friends? I like this question, and I was excited about answering it because I've worked at three different friend schools, one of them in North Carolina, Carolina Friend School, which is out in the woods. And then I worked at Abington Friend School, which is a friend school that's in the suburbs. And now I'm at Friend Select School, which is in the middle of the city. So I've done a country school, a suburb school, and a city school, all with through the lens of Quakerism. And I would say, what is the same between the, the schools is the ethos of the school. The buzz that you hear that you almost can't put your finger on exists in all three of those places. But what I can put my finger on is the relationships that our teachers have with their students. It is a way of thinking about, sometimes folks refer to it as, it's not class, it's meeting for worship for education or meeting for worship for teaching and learning. And that's the type of of atmosphere that's brought. It also has an essence of always having something to fall back on. So when I have a conversation with students, whether it's about diversity or whether it's in a class about math, having something to thread the needle with in terms of we are all in this particular space in order to respect each other's learning, adult to adult to student parents, but we're all in this, in, in this space sharing that together. One of the things that, that really compelled me when I first was introduced to a friend school rather than just a, you know, a different kind of independent or, or public school setting was the understanding of what is behind it, the underpinnings. And so again, as a Latin American woman, it drew me back to my own educational philosophies of origin. It made me think that there was a very strong resonance with that concept of what Paulo Freire talks about in terms of the purpose of education, you know, as to liberate human potential. And so the concept, the Quaker concept, that there is that of God in everyone, right? That there is an innate light an innate fire had deep resonance with my own roots. 
as I thought of, hmm, is this a place where I want to commit myself to it? What, what makes it different? And it was a completely different approach, right? From the more traditional backgrounds, from what I was coming from, in which the goal was to deposit knowledge into empty recipients. Quaker education sees that there is an innate grace, that there is an innate greatness, that it there is innate wisdom in the students. And so the communion that happens in the classroom and in the educational setting stems from a spiritual knowing that seeks to empower and bring forth that which is innate. And, and that is what drew me to it and what I think makes a friend's education distinct, exceptional, extraordinary, more than grandiose, right? Apart from ordinary ways of approaching the process of knowledge and wisdom seeking. One of the things I love about my job, I get to visit all different friend schools and I get to see these common threads in each place. The other thing I would add to what Monica and Tony have said is that there's, there are two aspects to Quaker school culture. One of them is about the deep respect that you can feel. It's tangible between students and teachers and students, families, administrators. And I, I see that as an outgrowth of the honoring of that light within, that fire within. The other thing is that there's a process of inquiry that we are all engaged in yeah. that is key. It makes me think back. I actually did my student teaching at Friends Select School. And I remember my first day, they put me with my cooperating teacher and we sat on the floor with the students. This blew my mind, you know, coming from public school. And they just asked questions of one another. The, the kids had questions, the teacher had questions, and they explored the topic together. So that idea that teachers are partners with students in looking for, I was gonna say looking for truth, it's really like looking for wisdom, knowledge, looking for more questions. Mm -hmm. Sometimes those questions guide us to more questions and, and that's part of the journey. So the honoring of that journey. The other thing I wanted to say is that at Friends Council, we lead workshops for teachers, professional development. And I just have come back from a three-day SPARK workshop. SPARK stands for Spirited Practice and Renewed Courage. And it's professional development to help teachers connect more deeply with who they are so that they can bring it more fully into the classroom. And we do that through a protocol that uses the third thing. And it's such a Quaker principle is that you have, Tony mentioned meeting for learning. You have the teacher, you have the student, and you have this third thing, something that's going to draw our attention and help us as we dissect it to see what truth we can find. And so to me, that's the essence that I see across all Quaker schools. Mm -hmm. So thinking about Quaker schools versus Quaker meetings, what is something you would either see in a Quaker meeting that you wouldn't see in a Quaker school or aside from the classrooms, except maybe not, see in a Quaker school that you wouldn't see in a Quaker meeting? What's the the line between the two. And, and I'm thinking also you all hold such history of Quakerism. When the Quakers started schools, what was their vision that these schools would do out in the world? Well, let me just go to the little history piece because I love that. Um, 
the oldest Quaker school in the United States on the North American continent is Penn Charter, William Penn Charter School. And there they were hoping to teach things, they called it teaching things civil and useful. So really what they wanted was to create citizens who understood how to live together in community and who saw themselves as participants in that community serving society and having very useful skills. Quakers were among the first groups of people to educate girls and boys together and to understand that everyone is entitled to an education. Everyone should be taught to read and to do mathematics. I'll let Tony and Monica chime in with the rest of it. Well, I was just thinking about the fact that Quakers don't proselytize. Like it's an important piece of the religion, at least unprogrammed Quakers, but schools do that for them. So seeing as if you send your kid to my school, whether they are Quaker or not, and they're a part of this education that has these moral roles or, or testimonies as a piece of who they say they are being, then that goes out into the world. Whether they hold that term Quaker when they go out into the world, that spirit goes out into the world. So I see some of the early Quaker schools having that in mind as well. Mm. I'm thinking, Tony, as a follow-up, because you had sparked something in my mind, and I'm going back to you and Deborah did Families Due to Quakerism a couple years in a row now for us here at Sandy Spring Friends School. And one of the things I learned from the first time y'all joined us were the number of Quaker businesses, right, that, that sparked up. And you brought up this word proselytizing. And I'm thinking, okay, they're starting these businesses, they're starting these schools, they've spread all over the world. What's the difference between that and proselytizing? And just now, my brain jumped and said, but Quakers are not conquerors, they're compellers. And that maybe what they were up to, which y'all correct me if I'm wrong, I'm learning from y'all today, <laughs> that what they hoped to do was to put themselves and their values enough out in the world that they would compel folks to join them as opposed to um, coerce folks to join them. But am I right on that? I would say absolutely. Go ahead, Monica. It looks like you're... No, I, I have to agree, Deborah. Absolutely. And I think that as we bring that concept, Rodney, into our, our current society, the current state of affairs in, in terms of friend school, it makes me think of the motto of our school, right? Let your lives speak. Mm -hmm. And perhaps the biggest draw to a friend's education is that what we offer is a moral compass that educates the conscience to act beyond terms, beyond tags, right? It is something that is compelling to a postmodern society that is begging for generations of people to stand in consciousness, right? And act in moral and empathetic and compassionate ways to lead us in different ways. So there is no need necessarily to proselytize because what we offer within this social context that we are currently living in is a lifestyle, a moral compass that empowers our students to seek wisdom, to seek truth, to seek the power of question and reflection and use it as the motor that will then ignite action uh, that will transform right, themselves, their communities and beyond. 
as you were speaking, Monica, that's what I was thinking is that they're, they know they have that moral compass and they know that they have a community to draw upon. Absolutely. So that's a communal piece. Um, and I just wanted to throw in the word convincement. You know, Quakers talk about you can be born into a Quaker family, but usually people are convinced they become convinced friends. They t adopt it as a lifestyle. And I love that word compellers, that we feel compelled to live in this way, compelled to live out our principles. I also wanted to introduce what I've noticed over the years is that there are a lot of students and their families who go through Quaker schools and aren't actually part of the Quaker meeting community, but consider themselves to be Quakers or consider themselves to be friends. And we're starting to call them almost Quakers, just people who use it as a guidepost for their lives. And I just helped a, a young woman be married because she was a student in a Quaker school her whole life. And that was the faith community that she wanted to turn to for this blessed event of her wedding, her partner. It's not proselytizing, but it is convincement. I like to call it Quaker kindred yeah. spirit. You called me something one day because I actually, even though I've been involved with Quakerism for, with Quaker education for, this is my 23rd year, I'm not Quaker, except for in my heart. <laughs> That's what I have to say. But I think it means that I'm not 100% convinced that I want to go to to church on Sundays or to meeting on Sundays and not sing um, like I do in my faith tradition. But in terms of how I live my life, most definitely. Can I be one of those almost Quakers, Deborah? <laughs> Absolutely, you are. <laughs> You're in it. So thinking about just the, the world that we're situated in right now and the political and social context in which we're having this conversation. I've been saying for two years now, I feel like Quaker schools are uniquely poised to answer and be solution bringers in a very topsy-turvy world right now around so many issues. I wonder if y'all will speak to, does social justice necessarily live in a Quaker school? Or what is the connection between Quakerism and the social justice of the past, but certainly the social justice of today. Well, I'll dip in. I think Quaker schools and Quaker meetings can and should work together to put our principles on the ground and to try to upset society wherever we can find it to, to create the society that we want, to bring equity and justice to every corner of society. We talk about transforming society. We talk about disrupting what we see. All of those are core to Quaker meetings. And we really appreciate that about Quaker schools because I think you have the opportunity in schools to really do some instruction around it and to sort of lay the groundwork from the past to, so that kids and teachers can learn from compelling movements of the past and learn what has created positive social change and how do we want to create it for ourselves. The other thing is that because we're such small communities, we have the, often have the opportunity to try things out in a way that bigger organizations or schools don't so that we can try out what it means to make consensual decisions in a group large or small. We can try out what it means to distribute authority and responsibility, which actually, if you think about it for all institutions, it just makes good sense. But because we have this culture of inquiry, reflection, trying things out, trying to live our principles, it's a great, it's like almost like 
turning the soil to make those things happen. And that brings more equity and justice into the wider world. I would dare to say, Deborah, that I concur with everything that, that you said. Quaker schools are poised at this time, at this juncture, at this historical time that we are living, not only to disrupt, but to deconstruct mm -hmm. and to co-create new spaces where equity, justice, and belonging are at the front and center of our organizational imperatives. Traditionally, yes, rooted in the Quaker testimonies and following those traditions that you have mentioned, we've always been fertile soil. I think that these times call for a louder voice and a higher and more visible presence. And I think that is a challenge for Quaker institutions, that because we are rooted in simplicity and because silence um, has been such a powerful tool to disrupt, at times we can shy away from more direct and vocal action. I think that the history of Quakerism, the traditions of a friend's education equip our students to, at this time, rise to the occasion in ways that are bolder than we might have been in years past. And so that gives me a lot of hope that our, our students and the communities that we nurture will take those traditions and those underpinnings and use them to propel us forward in ways that are necessary and that quite frankly, we no longer have the option not to move towards in more visible ways. I want to just jump on something you said that I like the word co-create that you spoke to. Uh, when I first started working here at Friends Select, one of the first meetings that I had was with the clerk of the Committee on Trusteeship of the board and clerk of the Quaker Life Committee. Because for me, I thought, I believe that those two pieces can't be, that we can't be divorced from the work that I do in the Equity and Inclusion Office. The Quaker life of the school equals the DEI work at the school. They're the mm -hmm. same thing. They can't be pulled apart. And I try to make sure that I'm reminding myself, why are we doing this? This is because like it's a symbiotic relationship. I think about what Dr. King said, which I like to think that Dr. King actually got his peace propositions from Quakers, even though they say Gandhi gave it to Baird Rustin, Baird Rustin gave it to Martin Luther King. That's what I'm saying. It's my story. I'm sticking to it. But Dr. King talks about peace not being the absence of conflict and I, I think that's so true. Like, how do we deal with conflict now in our world in a way that helps to propel us forward so that our children's children aren't having the exact same conversations? I think that a lot of people put in their heads that Quakerism often is people being silent on Sunday mornings. But no, Quakers are loud and their their voices in the world show up not just by saying, hey, I'm Quaker, but here's how my life is speaking, like you talked about as your motto at your school. I love that, Tony. I had to do a quick Google to make sure I knew what I knew, which is that the, the quote is, peace is not the absence of conflict, it is the presence of justice. Presence and of that justice. takes us right back to yes. sort of the connection between justice and Quakerism and Quakerism's foundation and, and peace. But Deborah, you were going to say something. I was just going to build on what has been said. Do Quaker meetings and Quaker schools have a long way to go? Yes, we still do. I think sometimes, at least I'll speak from the schools that I know and the meetings that I know, that sometimes we fall back on what I'll call politeness 
or sort of a fear of conflict, of aversion to upsetting things. And so we have to take a look at that. And we do. And the other thing I think is really important is that silence is not acquiescence. It is part of the reflective practice that Quakers do and that we want to teach out in Quaker schools because it helps us gain strength and loudness. And so it helps us we take the steps, we put our faith into practice, and then we come back and we reflect on it and say, okay, did that work? What can I do better? How can I be more effective? How can I bring more equity, justice, belonging, and love to this community? Mm -hmm. No, I appreciate that. I remind our students often that Quakerism is known for its silence, but that silence is so that it can give way to the power of voice. Yeah. Right. And and so balancing those. And that's why the motto is let your lives speak. It's not let your lives be silent enough so that, oh, but when you do speak, there is an intentionality and a power behind it and a purpose that is much deeper. You know, as we wrap our time up, I'm very mindful of you all are three folks who know Quakerism very well and know our school, Sandy Spring Friends School, very well. So I'll put you on the spot and do a, a quick assessment of our own <laughs> Quakerism. Each Quaker school does its own brand of Quakerism and infuses it in its own way. And so I'd love for each of you to talk about a moment where you saw Sandy Spring doing Quakerism, but in its own unique way. When you think about this particular Quaker school, what is something you think of when you go, that's uniquely them? The first thing that came to mind for me was Torch. Was that Torch you're going to say? Yes. Um, <laughs> Um, yes. <laughs> is that a, is that an acronym? I can't remember. It's not an acronym, but it's it's, it's like flame torch. Yes, but I'm thinking last year when Deborah and I came to talk to, I think it was the parents. You had one of the leaders from Torch right. who came and helped us with with that conversation, and I love that he took ownership of what he was saying. There was a essence of this is my work too, as a member of this community, not just you know, these folks y'all hired to come talk to us, but this is these are the things that we're doing as well. And I loved that. If that's indicative of other pieces of your school, um, I thought there was a special light to that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Student voice is one of the things I think about in student leadership, right? And I remember that was Gus who said, can I co-facilitate? <laughs> and of course the answer was yes. And what a great job he did on just talking about how our school does quicker. Yeah. I was going to jump in and, and, and say something similar, Tony, because just yesterday I visited the Torch meeting. And so part of the work that I do at Sandy Spring Friends is Clark, our COVID response team. And the teenagers had a lot to say about what we're doing in terms of COVID mitigation, right, and, and all of that. So they invited me so I could see how they conduct business. And then they wanted to have an opportunity for a listening session. And sitting right then and there among a group of young committed leaders rooted in Quaker testimonies and in peaceful but very assertive ways, bringing their truth, speaking truth to power, inviting me, right, in representation of our CRT, of our team, to engage with them in the process of continuing revelation in order to co-create ways in which we continue to attend to a very real, relevant, and global issue in this pandemic really blew me away. And so 
that is just one example of, of how Sandy Spring Friends School does Quakerism and does it well from the mouths of babes, right? I, I took notice, I took notes, and I have some homework to do. <laughs> and, and I need to get back to that group of, of teenagers who will then work on a proposal and present to some of our senior admins at school to engage in dialogue, to see how we can collaborate to alleviate condition that, that is really touching so many parts of the school experience. And the institution at this time really compelled me and, and, and touched me in, in ways that I had not anticipated. The only thing I would add, it's, it's interesting to me that both Tony and Monica touched on a story that involved the engagement of students. And that is the, that's the heart of it. And I too, about, I think it's been four years ago, came down and with another teacher, Kiri Harris from Green Street Friends School, we worked with the entire middle school student community to help them think about how to do Quaker-based decision-making, how to, to gain, to sense the meeting. What are some of the qualities that a clerk needs to have if you're going to be the clerk of your class or the clerk of your small group? We talked about, you know, what if you get stuck and you can't reach a decision? What do you do then? What's a threshing session? It was a wonderful day and every kid was involved and every teacher was involved as well. And so to me, that speaks to both engagement of the students, but also of the faculty in really wanting to make these concepts, these core principles work mm. enough that you'll give some actual time. This is educational time, learning time. It's not a wasted day. This is part of our education at Sandy Spring Friends. No, I love that. I would echo that. It's what we need to the school as well is the student voice that really lives and breathes and expects to be at the table in all the right ways. And I saw it in my many visits and I see it every day here. And that sense of there's a leader in every seat and that every voice that rises is an important one is so rooted in Quakerism and lives so well here. And it's not easy to do. No, it <laughs> and it isn't always utopic and you don't always want to hear it, but you always need to hear it. And, and you always can still yourself to hear it. I think about just that opportunity in our practice to slow down and to hear and to feel more that we're gaining from the collective than we could individually. Mm -hmm. And so to this collective, I say thank you for giving your time to the podcast today. And I'm walking away just full and grounded. And there's something about, even when you speak of Quakerism, there's a different calm that washes over you as you talk about it. I'm walking away from this conversation just grounded in my own peace. And so I thank you for that. Rodney, thank you so much for inviting me to be part of this conversation. Uh, I can't wait to come back to Sandy Spring Friends School in person. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you so much for the invitation, Rodney. It's been great to be part of this conversation with Deborah and Tony and you. And I hope to continue to collaborate. Thank you all so much um, for having me. And I hope that I am continuing to be able to be part of the Sandy Spring community. Yes, yeah, such a pleasure. Thank you all. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the New Stories Podcast.